Hi everyone and welcome to this week's Feminist Futures. I'm your host Wallace Grant. I hope you're all doing well and that you enjoyed last week's discussion on sustainable fashion. I just wanted to give a big thanks to everyone who posted the podcast on their social media and reached out to me to say they'd listened. Um, It was really great to hear some feedback and I'm so excited um, to share more of the series with you. This week's podcast looks at Universal Basic Income, or UBI, and asks if a regular cash payment every week could really help to tackle gender inequality, or would it serve to reinforce it? For it, I'm joined by Michael Pugh, director and co-founder of the Basic Income Conversation. Hosted by the think tank Compass, the conversation promotes basic income in the UK and supports people and organisations to engage with UBI. Mike has a background in community organisation, having worked on the Living Wage campaign for a number of years, and he's also a good friend of mine. We often find ourselves discussing his work in the pub, or often me quizzing him about him, so it was really nice to sit down and get into the ins and outs of UBI, particularly from a gendered point of view. In this episode, we discuss how the pandemic has shown just how insecure we are, particularly financially, and how a weekly guaranteed cash payment could help to provide some sense of freedom from worry, particularly for women who are often in precarious or unsecure situations. We discuss if an implementation of UBI would further entrench gender inequality or help women escape abusive and controlling relationships. And we talk about the need to change the narrative around what counts as work, particularly work done in the care sector, and how we can change people's mind about what they think they deserve from the state. As always, if you enjoy the episode or want to add to the discussion, feel free to reach out to me on at Feminist Futures Pod for Instagram, at Podcast Futures on Twitter, and Old School Gmail, Feminist Futures Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, enjoy the show. But yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. I was saying it feels a bit weird to do this when we live about 20 minutes away from each other um, and we could be doing it in person, but you know, COVID safe and all that. UBI is something, um, or universal basic income, UBI for the rest of the podcast, um, is something that has really interested me for a long time. And when I was thinking about doing the podcast, I was really excited to be able to talk about it from a kind of gendered perspective and the impact that it's having on women or, or could have on women. I guess for many people, UBI is something that's sort of come um, become more prevalent because of because of COVID, or or maybe you know if they were watching the presidential elections with Andrew Yang and his Yang Gang, that would have been um, maybe the first time they they kind of heard of it. But I thought it'd be great if you could start off by talking through what UBI is um, for you, what it means, and how the last sort of six to what are we on like eight or nine months now have been working um on this topic during the pandemic sure thing um so so for those that don't haven't come across the idea of a universal basic income it's quite a simple one but it has big implications potentially so at its heart it's the idea of giving everybody a regular cash payment forever and we already have a basic income for most children and most pensioners in the form of child benefit and state pension. And this is the idea of expanding that to every single person in society, regardless of their background, regardless of if they're in work or not. 
Um, and effectively, it would become this secure floor that nobody could fall below, um, but also a springboard for people to aspire to what they really want to be doing in life. Uh, and it's based on this idea that we all have a right to some financial security, particularly at a time when so many of us have experienced financial insecurity over the last uh, year or so. And, and I think I think basic income has, it's an old idea, it has a long history, it's been tested uh, in various experiments uh, around the world uh, and increasingly so in recent years. And I think we've seen a resurgence over the last five years or so as an idea. But you're right to say, I think the pandemic has thrust the idea even more into the spotlight. I think it's a shame it's taken a pandemic for, for people to, to realise just how insecure uh, we all are in many ways, um, whether that's in our mental health, uh, in our on our housing. If you're in the private rented sector, suddenly you're wondering what how how are you going to pay the rent uh, each month? Uh, in our work, uh, in particular, um, and it's this kind of sense of unstable politics and unstable climate all around us. I think that it just gives rise to this this level of insecurity, and I think what basic income offers and I think people have increasingly seen that uh, in the pandemic that it could offer this kind of plank of security this floor that people could could stand on um, and all of the benefits that that would that would bring. I want to kind of briefly touch on the historical aspect and then we can go back to the pandemic but I think that's something that that struck me is that it's quite an old idea like there were people you know throughout history who have been proponent kind of proponents of this idea of income with no kind of strings attached and obviously there's that famous story of um Richard Nixon you know famously a right-wing president who nearly implemented this in in um in in the states um and what what that kind of talk soon I just want to touch on this sort of briefly is that I think it's an idea that isn't really on the left or the right or I mean challenge me on that if you, if you feel that's right but what I've seen is that it's something that people have come to as a kind of practical um, implementation of how do we solve a problem is that something you're seeing nowadays from like the UK government or devolved nations are you seeing kind of cross-party um, ideas of people saying this might be a great great kind of proponent to help what's going on yes yeah, so um, you're absolutely right to point out that it's it's got a long tradition as an idea some people date it as far back as kind of Thomas More hundreds of years ago Thomas Paine in the United States one of the founding fathers um, yeah in in the last century had people on the right like as you said Richard Nixon Milton Freeman um, but also uh, people like Martin Luther King uh, uh, kind of talking about it from a racial justice point of view and, and I think it you're, you're right to say that it's one of these ideas which has a tradition in, in lots of um, different political thought uh, and therefore makes it one of these rare ideas where it's not naturally a left or a right issue it's many kind of see it as just a practical route field exactly. forward so you're absolutely right there and I think that does play out um, in in what we've seen recently um, we've seen an extraordinary amount of cross-party support for the idea um, uh, across all four nations of, of the United Kingdom. Uh, the Liberal Democrats have recently become the, the biggest party so far to, to formally back the idea um, following the footsteps of the Green Party, who have been the long-term supporters of it. But the Scottish National Party, and, and Nicola Sturgeon in particular, has been very vocal. In, she's even gone as far as say it's a, an idea whose time has come 
uh, the, the, the government even before the pandemic was funding uh, ex exploration around doing pilots in Scotland. Uh, the Welsh Senate recently uh, passed a supportive motion of basic income. It's again interested in exploring pilots. There's a number of local authorities now right across uh, the UK who are, who are doing the same. Mm -hmm. What we haven't seen though is is the the, the current government uh, either supporting it, but certainly not implementing one. We're not getting cash into our into our bank account right now. <laughs> but also that they they've even stopped short of of supporting those pilots. So if a place like Scottish government or any local authority or devolved power across the country wanted to do a pilot, which many do, they do need the cooperation of the um, of Westminster government. And currently, they've not offered that support, and that's that's frustrating. Frustrating, frustrating, I should say. And and there is a risk there, I suppose, that it, it it's seen as this kind of you know progressive parties generally backing the idea, and and a more quite a right wing conservative government say saying no, it doesn't. Actually, you're right. Historically, when you look back at some of the, you know, for example, the, the Finnish pilot that took place uh, between 2017 mm. and 2018, that was a that was a conservative government that introduced that pilot. Um, and, and likewise, you know, that the kind of history in, in, in North America has has a, a conservative element to it. So it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, and we hope that through the, the activism and the campaigning that's happening now, um, that there's still a chance that that conservatives here can, can get on board with the idea yeah definitely I think what was really interesting about the kind of Sturgeon quote of saying the time has come I think I saw someone had said oh it's kind of the NHS of our generation um so it's kind of this big you know it could be this really big kind of shift and 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 really become norm and part of the foundation of of the UK kind of as a whole um, to come back onto the pandemic and the effects that you're seeing I want to kind of bring in the sort of gendered angle you know we've seen all sectors being impacted by COVID and, and the pandemic and lockdowns. But what we're increasingly seeing is that the industries and the sectors that are lots of women work in them, whether it's um, the care sector or hospitality, are being hit in some ways the hardest. Um, and these were industries that were already um, in precarious situations. So you've already got workers who were on, you know, zero contracts with not a lot of rights, etc. in that way. Is that something you're seeing in the research and things that you're hearing on the ground from people that um, the pandemic has has hit women in a, in a specific way? And is that something you're thinking about from a UBI angle? Yeah, definitely. I, I think that the pandemic, in many ways, I think hasn't created anything new. I think it's just exposed what kind of some of the trends that were already happening in our, in our country. Uh, and you're absolutely right to point out that you know the. I think a strong argument around basic income is around that, that it gives security in, in a time of insecurity. And in the workforce, we've seen this huge rise of insecurity, either through the gig economy and flexible working or through uh, automation and changes to uh, in, in technology. And as you say, that it's, it's women and other minorities uh, who are being most affected by that. Um, during the pandemic, who are, who are, have the least security in, in their work, um, and we're starting to see that in terms of the you know the people who have been on furlough, uh, the people who have been beginning to lose their jobs, um, and I think what's different to let's say the last time we had a mass unemployment uh, issue was throughout the 80s and, and the mm -hmm. early 90s. That was traditionally, and I know there's I'm speaking generally here, but traditionally it was. Uh, heavy industry, manufacturing, 
which tended to be exactly. to, to be male occupations. Uh, and we saw there's been mm. lots of uh, lots written about you know the impact that that had on uh, on on men uh, in certain communities um, and, and the kind of scarring impact that that had on local communities, economies, and and perhaps deeper stuff around around gender roles in society. Um, but I think what this pandemic is, has has meant, and the, the 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 crisis that we're about to see in unemployment is going to hit a different group of people, um, and mm. we'll have a you know we're yet to see what impact that that will have. But unless we try and bring in things that can give people security and that can help people transition into what is going to be a very different economy over the coming coming decade or so, then we really are going to see some really um, big problems. And I think you're right to say. A lot of people have compared the pandemic to, to World War Two in many ways, and yeah, people are. But what followed World War Two was the big change because we realised that we had to implement changes that were going to help us go through through the next phase, and and that was things like the NHS, like the welfare state, which were wonderful at the time, and we hold them dear. But you know, that was seventy five years or so ago. We need to think about what are the new things that we need to bring in that's going to help us deal with the current crises. I should say the other thing that I think the other element that I think the, the pandemic has exposed from a gendered point of view is I think we've we've it's made people realize the value of unpaid labor. I think the the, the true value of it. So the exactly. you know, people staying at home, looking after children, looking after loved ones, volunteering in their local community, being involved in mutual aid groups. All of that, are, it's currently valued at zero by the market and the state. And basic income would help us exactly. help us reimagine what, what work means, not just paid labour, but work and contribution in society. And I think that will help us uh, rebalance the way we think about work and, and help us shift towards a more caring economy, which we see, as I said, we've seen elements of it throughout the pandemic. But if we don't we now need to think about the structures like basic income that can help that continue for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. That's what I was going to go on to next is that, you know, alongside the pandemic, I was just reading an article, um, yes, in BBC about this. We've, you know, we've also seen the shift of um, burden of care, you know, whether that's um, people, as you said, people looking after people in the community, whether it's how we look after, you know, uh, elder relatives or how we look after children. And from some research done, it shows that women are on average doing 26 hours of unpaid care um, to the 16 hours of, of men. Could UBI, you know, actually be paying for those hours of unpaid care that we now value at zero? Could it be giving a value and giving a, a sense of, uh, yeah, a sense of value, I guess, to, to these things that we often in society don't don't value at all. I think it's a really interesting interesting topic, and it also challenges this idea of of kind of what we see as as valued in in care work and also in in kind of raising children. I'm I'm wondering if UBI could also have an unintended consequence where it actually entrenches some of these gender divides. So you might have if you have a basic income that you're um, living on, you might have more women um, who choose to take time off to, for maternity leave, staying off, um, and creating those gender divides. Is that something you've thought about as well? Yeah. So it's it's a it's I think when you get into basic income and how it its potential impact on on gender balances, it, it's one of the things that come up comes up straight away it's like does basic income 
uh, reinforce uh, gender stereotypes around traditional things like looking after children, staying at home, doing housework. And I suppose it has a historical context, you know, early kind of supporters of basic income, you know, the, the wages for housework movement in the kind of 70s was talking about effectively, you know, rewarding uh, that work with a wage in the, in the form of something similar to a, to a basic income. And I think I wouldn't see, I don't see it as like in, in directly in those terms, but it, I think it, the message that basic income would give to people from, from the state is that we value you as human beings and we trust you to do the things that you think is best to contribute to society. And I think the gender stereotype thing, I think it helps us for many men. That would mean being able to stay at home looking after children or at least rebalance that 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 dynamic in, in the household. And I think it would also give many, many women that I think what 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 basic income offers is is freedom, the freedom to to whether that's start your own business or go back to work a little bit sooner or um you know be more active in in your community, whatever that might be. Uh, there's more freedom to do that. Yeah. I think you're I think you're right. So let's let's do a little a little forward into the future. We'll pick we'll pick five years, although I think you could definitely get it done in three, but let's do five. It's five years time. You know, UBI has been passed, people are accessing it. Everyone in, in the UK will say, for example, is accessing it. Could you just give us a rundown of how that would work and what you would see perfect system looking like? God, it's an exciting vision. I think it's helpful that we don't have, it's not entirely utopian to think about this because it has been tried in different places. So we can already begin to picture what some of the changes that might take place. So I think for overwhelmingly from the evidence that we've seen around the world, the biggest impact that basic income has is, is on health. And I think we can probably vision what our GP surgeries would look like, what our hospital would look like because the evidence is that you know you're likely to see a huge reduction in people visiting those places improvements in people's mental health uh in their physical health being able to uh, perhaps afford uh better nutrition in their food being able to uh be less stressed and anxious through their finances uh being able to see and spend more time with their family being able to to do more um uh, things that they really want to do whether it's you know, being involved in a uh, in a community project or starting their own business, whatever it might be, uh, the, the impacts on mental health and physical health are, are likely to be huge. And that's kind of been, the evidence is pretty strong around that, where, wherever you've seen basic income or cash transfers be, be trialed. So I think that that in itself it is a really exciting vision. And I think if we had created a drug that would do all of that stuff, we would be we would be putting that into the uh, into the water system, uh, and that's that's the chance that that basic income can have. We can put that into our uh, into our bank accounts and let that flow around, and the, and the impact on our health would be huge. I think I think the other impacts that you're likely to see. I I, I think for, for me it's it's the power to say no and the freedom to say yes mm -hmm. what it gives you is is the power to say no to exploitative exploitative or abusive relationships whether that's with your employer whether that's with your landlord or your your partner having some financial security gives you some power to either to be able to walk away from that scenario and not, and not be 
exposed to uh, abuse. And I think that has huge implications for, for gender relations in workplaces, in, in relationships, certainly. And I think that's on an individual level. And then I think when, when that's taken to a collective and you multiply that out across a whole community, then I think you're starting to see potentially more collective expressions of working together, uh, organising, campaigning, and being able to start to think about, get our head above water and start to think about tackling some of the other problems uh, like climate change and you know, other things going on in our community. The last thing I'd say is I, I think I, I'm from a small seaside town that traditionally has been struggling. It's kind of lost tourism. It used to be a holiday hotspot. It's a little um, beach place in Kent. And I think what you'd likely to see with a basic income, it's like a huge investment, a huge stimulus of money flowing into those places. Um, and you'd like to, you know, most, most of the evidence, again, from the pilots is that people spend the money locally. And, um, and I think you'd likely to see a revival of the high street, the revival of um, small businesses and, and, and the local economy. And I think that, that would be really exciting for, for many places and breathe, breathe life back into some communities that have been sucked out in, of, uh, for, for many years. I think that's completely right. Yeah, I'm also from a, a, a small seaside town. Unfortunately, it's not a holiday destination because it's in Scotland, but it's um, it's still similarly, you know, been really ravaged. And, and to have more local economies and the ability for people to start businesses in the local area, I think would be would be incredible. I mean, that all sounds amazing. You know, I'm I'm a huge a huge proponent of, of UBI and I would never never deny it or, or go with things I wanted to just try and to get into a couple of the kind of ins and outs of just some of the questions that came up in my mind when I was talking about it just some basic ones so, so one of the things that I was thinking about was like right okay say we got a basic income of 1500 to 2000 a month right I'm just picking picking that number out of anywhere I assume that there would have to be legislations and um, kind of structures put in place so that my landlord or the water, you know, companies and electricity couldn't just hike up all their prices and take take all the money away from me. I take it that's something that would have to go alongside any kind of implementation of UBI. Yes, I, I mean the, the figure you wrote that, that that is a lot. That is a large basic income. That would be wonderful, and, and probably you know, that would be. Oh, that's what I'm. That's what we're aiming uh, yeah, for. So. Yeah, that would be that would be amazing. <laughs> Nothing less. Um, yeah, I think that just to, for listeners, you know, mo- most proponents of basic income talk about a more, a more modest, more modest amount of money. But um, so, so first, I think within your question, I guess is a question about inflation. So, so would and it's a the logic that thinks you know if people have got more money they're going to spend it more wouldn't prices go up and i think there's a couple of things there around you know the the money we're not talking about any new money in the system we're not like borrowing and printing money to do this it's it's just redistributing money that's already in the system so the inflationary pressures aren't 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 the same and and i think the the same things that keep inflation down uh, around competition for for customers and things and, and and also going back to the automation thing in terms of you know the changes to technology mean that you mm-hmm. know those comp- those pressures aren't going away anywhere so that so th- those will likely to uh, act as buffers to keep uh, inflation down but you are right that it does need to sit alongside other uh, ideas that can uh, that can tackle those things so for example rent controls you know, London 
is one of the only major cities that doesn't have rent controls. Uh, and, we, and it's a huge problem in terms of the price of private rental sector. Uh, so, you know, a cap, of rent, a cap on rents is a good idea regardless of basic income. But I think, again, it's one of these things that would sit alongside nicely. And yes, I, I think there's also, you know, en- energy prices. Again, we've seen over the last 10 years, like more, more needs to be done to tackle the so-called big six who have kind of been fixing prices in, in, in a way. So, um, again, more more uh, measures on them to, to be able to bring down prices would be really important. But I, I think those are good ideas regardless of UBI. And I think we mustn't, I think there's a danger where we think in order to have UBI, we must have those. That's not necessarily the case. We can, we can do basic income and it wouldn't have a massive inflationary uh, impact. But we should also do those ideas too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. No, it does. Yeah, for sure. As I said, it was just the one thing that kind of struck me when I was thinking about, you know, I was thinking more about my landlord. Yeah. <laughs> first and foremost, thinking, oh, you know, I'm earning more money then. <laughs> I think I'd be the first thing to go. I, I think um, housing, though, is a really interesting one to think about what, what impact would it have? So, I mean, so I think there's a lot of younger so millennials, let's say, who, who probably don't have a mm-hmm. huge amount of savings behind them. And when, when we speak to people having basic income conversations about what would people do with it, I think a lot of people would say save because they, they are living at, at sort of very limits of their the, the money they get in in their pay packet. They pretty much all goes out and, and have very little um, added. And I think a lot of those people are in the private rented sector. So and would desperately like the security of being able to afford their own home. So I think that they would you'd likely see a lot of people being able to save up uh, their basic income to pay for something like a deposit. And that will have implications on the housing market. And I think that's something that really important questions that we should think through with people in the housing sector uh, about, you know, what, what will that do? It's, not, it's of course, like it's, it's not it's not without risks. And I, and I think we should we should be honest about those and think think. Um, think through what what some of the implications would be but um but more more uh, more regulation of landlords is we, we should definitely have that regardless i mean yeah, yeah. <laughs> i sh- i will definitely do a podcast episode that's about that's about rent control or, or, or those kind of things because it's yeah i think i think the thing that always gets and this is just a slight aside is that how how norm how that much of a norm it becomes like we're so used to paying you know we both live in london and 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 the rents for it and then when you talk to people outside of there you think wow yeah the fact that we have no rent control in this city is just it's just madness beyond beyond yeah life. and just finally just finally and on that sorry to... is is like the, the again through the conversations that we're having a lot of people who live in houses of multiple occupancy or have an, a, a real you know a rogue landlord an abusive landlord that is taking advantage of them i think it goes back to the power to say no but so if you have some basic financial security where you know that the money you're, is coming in and that you you're basically able to stand up to your landlords um, and say you know, you're not at complete risk of destitution if you if you uh, if they kick you out. And I think that's that is really really important to to shift in the balance um, between tenants and and landlords. Exactly, and I imagine it's a lot of kind of people who are maybe in um, lower socioeconomic groups who end up in that situation more so, and so it just becomes a chain of kind of exploitative um, relationships. Um, I wanted to just ask if in in your perfect vision of UBI, would you be seeing it as an individual payment to an individual rather than to a household? Just 
because I've, I was reading something from the women's budget group um, the other day that was saying that if it was to a household, then we might, again, fall back into those kind of gender dynamics where it goes to the man, the, you know, the head of the household traditionally and could feed into sort of financial abuse. Um, but I think that was slightly outdated from from what I understand and that kind of more modern pro- like proponents of UBI, it would be an individual payment to, to an individual. Is that correct? That's correct. It's one of the five characteristics of a, of a basic income is that it would go to an individual um, and not the household. And that is very distinct to how the, the current uh, welfare system works, where, where it does go to the household. Exactly. And, and as you say, has all sorts of implications for, for gender dynamics in, in households. A lot of, I, I suppose, a kind of very recent example of that is the, the shocking statistics about how uh, domestic violence uh, cases have gone up um, during COVID. And I think so much of that is women not having the, the financial, the, the, the kind of the, the economic insecurity in, in, in that that drives um, the tension and, and leads to violence and women not having the, the financial security to be able to flee a uh, abusive uh, situation like that um, and still being if, if it is going to, to somebody a certain individual in the household the payments they make they have they don't have access to being uh, to their own money to be able to, to escape and that's um, that's one of the strongest arguments for it being an individual payment and and not the household and that's that's that has played out actually in some of the, the pilots and experiments that have taken place around the world, particularly in the global south, interestingly, in places mm-hmm. like India and Kenya, where one of the, the starkest mm-hmm. piece of evidence there is the impact on, on women, sometimes anecdotal in terms of you know, the, the, the empowerment that they felt, whether that's even just walking on a certain side of the street, walking with, you know, with, without their face covered uh, and, and having their own, their own money to spend. Has had huge implications in, on, on their on their um, gender dynamics in the in the in the villages in which it's been trialed. So I think um, so. Yes, it would it would go to the individual, and that's really really important feature of basic income. And, and I think just finally on that, sometimes people think, oh, you know, when you hear a more modest basic income figure quoted, let's say, I don't know, sort of hundred pound a week. Um, Mm-hmm. you know that that is that is for the individual so if you are in a household of two or more adults you know you, you can clump that together uh, and and do more with it but that would be your choice um uh, whereas at the moment you, that choice isn't there for people because it's naturally clumped together in, in a household payment yeah definitely and so i take it in in your version it, it would also be sort of once you hit 18 upwards or have you thought about a kind of cut age cut off that you would look at for that yeah so so uh, a lot of the basic income uh, literature is that it would go to all adults over the age of 18, but you would have a basic income for children as well, probably at a, a slightly lower rate. And uh, there, there's a really good question about, well, who should that payment go to in the household? Uh, mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, and some women's organisations have said, well, it should go to the, to the mother, but others have said well, you know, it should, shouldn't have to go to the mother, it should go you know, to, to the to, to one of the parents so there's a there's a good question about that and I think we you know if, if we got to the point of implementation it's those kind of technical details that'd be really important that you wouldn't want to have any unintended consequences of, of doing it one or one way or the other and that's why you know groups like the women's budget group and others should be at the heart of those conversations of designing 
how this works so we, so that it can have its have the best possible impact on, on gender equality. Exactly. I think also it'd be interesting to know if maybe, you know, saving that money, depending on the situation, you know, having it put into a pot and then, you know, giving to when you're 18 as a kind of learning budget or whatever, you know, I know there's been discussions about that, hasn't there? And, and other things of how you redistribute for that thing. But yeah, I guess for, for families who are maybe living more on the breadline, having that kind of income for the child as well is, is so important. Yeah, I, um, I think I think we can take a lot of lessons from child benefit, which for, for a long time acted mm-hmm. effectively as a universal basic income for children uh, until it was until mm-hmm. the last government did introduce like a taper at the top for the high earners. And in a, in a way, you could just remove that taper and, and then you'd move back to effectively a basic income for, for children. But I think mm-hmm. for many, particularly in, the, in an age now of universal credit, you hear stories of many families saying that the child benefit element was the only guaranteed bit of cash that they could rely on. That's, and I think as well as the amount of a basic income, it's, it's more about its guaranteed nature. You know it's coming. Um, even if it's not a huge amount, you know it's there, and that's the kind of security that I think exactly. that people can can plan around. And so at least you can allocate that to you know school uniform or or putting food on the table and, and heating and rent and things like that. So I think it's it's the it's the regularity and the certainty of it that that gives that security for people. Exactly. I think also the system is that there are no you don't have to jump through hoops there's no trying to sign up to universal credit and being told you know you've not got the right email address or the right phone or you know whatever horror stories that we see in the kind of system as it is now um i wanted to just touch on this briefly and before we go into kind of the more practical steps of how we would get there but i was reading something yesterday from i think it was the new economics foundation that where they were arguing for universal basic services um, versus a kind of like the, a UBI. Just wondered if you had like a comment on that or thoughts on on that. To be honest, I, I, I did do a little bit of research into it, but I couldn't quite, I felt like they were two separate things and could have run parallel, you know, as in we talked about this package of things. Um, do you feel like it's a one or the other or do you feel like it, it, it could be this package of, of things that we could offer people in the future? I definitely think it's a, pass- a package I think uh, for some reason, and I think maybe it's just the, the fact that they're both called universal something, something, yeah. <laughs> uh, universal basic something. And um, it, it's meant that people have really unhelpfully tried to pit the two as competing ideas right. against each other. And they're not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when you look at the New Economics Foundation's work, they, they do talk about a minimum income guarantee and how cash is a really important service, if you like. Um, uh, and so basic income, most basic income advocates you speak to, self-included, are very pro basic services. Like, you know, we have universal healthcare, we have you know, universal education, and we should have other universal things like childcare. Um, social care as well. You know, uh, yeah. Social care. Yeah. Some people talk about transport. So I think that's really, yeah, I, I think they sit alongside each other really well. I think there's also almost an argument to say you can't have one without the other, mm-hmm. because I think there's a if you follow the basic services argument all the way down the line which is that you know the state is providing everything for you there is a risk that you are getting into quite paternalistic things where the state knows best state knows exactly what services they want to provide you and there's a risk of kind of not as much choice there for the individual 
And there are some things that, uh, you know, services just can't provide, you know, things like clothing, for example, it's, yeah. it's just not realistic to, to think about. So you, there has to be a cash element of that uh, to provide people with some basic security. Um, and I think from, from the other thing I'd say on that is my experience, my, my background's in community organizing and, um, you know, just, just speaking to people that the thing that the thing that really people need is, is cash. It's just money. I don't think people are calling out for any particular service. Yeah, I think you're completely right. I think actually really interestingly, one of the things that we can learn from international development and kind of global aid is that many of the kind of early proponents were saying we need to give people services and we need to give people, you know, these programs, that kind of thing. And actually one of the most effective things for reaching for getting people out of poverty is just giving them cash to and for them to do what they need with it. You know, only an individual knows what yeah. they need from it. Um and as you said, it gets into this weird paternalistic where the state is saying you can spend your money on this but you can't on others. And um I don't think that's a line that it's a slippery slope, isn't it, to go to go down. Yeah, absolutely. And I, 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 and I think um uh, yeah, and there's a way of not going down that slope with, with basic basic services. But I think you're right at, at its heart. Uh, basic income is a message that really says, you know, that that we trust you to make the right decisions for you and your family. And there's there's a wonderful pilot that's happening at the moment in Kenya, uh, one of the best pilots out there because it's it's like a 12 year pilot across a number of villages. And one of the uh, participants talks about how previously uh aid agencies would come in and as you say give, give the try and offer out these services and and he said you know, it, we don't we don't need a goat we don't always need a goat that you're going to give us we just 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 trust exactly. just trust us just, and, and actually sometimes i think there's a lot of we, we overthink things and, and cash isn't gonna it's, it's not a silver bullet it won't solve everyone everyone's all the problems but God, it w- really would solve a lot of problems i think people that say Money doesn't solve your your problems. I think sometimes aren't aren't people that have been broke once. Um, like money really yeah. will solve some problems for people quickly. Um, not all not all of yeah. them, but it will will solve a lot. And also, there's this there's you know been loads of studies done. I think I think actually Rutger Bregman talks about this in his book about you know the the less money you have, the more likely you are to not be financially savvy. Savvy, you know, is some sort of psychological you know aspect. And I mean, even just on a personal level, when I was you know interning and didn't have a lot of money, I definitely found myself doing more things with money than I probably would do now. It was it was a strange kind of kind of dynamic where you were sort of doing the quandary of what you had. So I think as in just taking away that kind of anxiety and taking away that worry of of that's on your mental health would just create such a better living living a level of living that we haven't seen yet or we're you know in the UK for a long time I want to just move on slightly to the the next part about how we get there what I'm actually going to start with is a little bit of societal norms and shifts changing because I think there are conversations right from what I've read and from what you've said going on in government there are rumblings of it happening there but do you feel that there would need to be a kind of mass movement or public opinion shift for it to really kick, for example, the, the, the government that we have right now into gear on something like this? Definitely. I, I think my take on it and having been lucky enough to speak to a lot of politicians about this in, in the last year is that behind the scenes that there is there is a lot of interest in this, certainly amongst the progressive parties and in, with, with some some members of the Conservative Party. And privately would say it's a very good idea. And I think the pandemic has has set, has enabled politicians to 
to say that a bit more publicly. Uh, I think people like Nicola Sturgeon, we talked about earlier, you know, now being a, a much more vocal proponent, I think probably has been for a while, but hasn't felt comfortable enough to, to say it out loud. And, and I think that's because you've seen public opinion shift and because of the pandemic, um, you know, the arguments for it have become clearer. What I think, what I th- and you've seen a huge growth in the, the amount of activism around basic income. It's really exciting at the moment. I'm part of a, uh, our organization's part of a, a number of different organizations working together um, to, put, to push this, um, which is really exciting. And so I think it's beginning to happen in terms of building this popular movement. We need to need to continue to grow it. But I, I think politicians need to feel to feel that there's a solid ground for them to walk on and to feel like they're they're not too exposed. And, and basically, you know, it's it's we can't deny it's a big shift in how we think socially and culturally and economically. And 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 we've got to. Sometimes we berate politicians and sometimes they should take more leadership on issues. But I think they've got to, we've got to kind of hold their hand a little bit and make them, and reassure them that there is huge public support for this. And I think you're beginning to see that with, with polling, you know, basic income regularly polls is a very popular idea. But, we, mm-hmm. but we've seen at the last election, you know, many, many of the ideas that was in the Labour manifesto were, were very, very popular off the scale in terms of levels of public support. And that didn't necessarily translate into into making them happen. So I think there's other things that we need to do in order to um, in order to, for us to see to see this happen. I think in my mind, there's, there's two things. There's one of the things one of the absences, I think, in, in the pandemic was that whilst you had lots of politicians talking about it and you had lots of people naturally talking about it in society, individuals, I think what was lacking was kind of the more traditional civil society organisations, the institutions, the charities, pressure groups, the associations, the unions, that they they were kind of a bit quiet on basic income. And I think they, they are, mm. in a way, they are like politicians where they have reputations, they have funders, and, and are some, in some cases, a little bit risk averse. And um, yeah. again, privately are enthusiastic about basic income, but for whatever reason, as an organisation, they're not willing to, to step out of line. And politicians notice that. And I think, you know, they, they meet with these organisations on a regular basis. And I think they'll, until we can move some of those organisations to be more pro basic income, that, then I think that that will be. I think when we start to see that shift happening, that will be a sign. I think to people to say, "Oh, this is, this is starting to move forward." And I think the other thing, and it's harder to measure, but these are like deeper societal shifts that we need, and maybe worthy of a question on each of these. But I think there's there's a there's a, a societal shift that we need to see about changing attitudes to work, and I think the pandemic's helping us do that in terms of reimagining the kind of traditional work roles. I think we need uh, a, a slight shift in, in, in our thinking about universalism. So we touched on that a minute ago with services, but thinking about, you know, why should everybody get it, basically? Like we, that's that's something that we need to, to shift. And I think I think to get really deep about it, it's, I think it, it strikes to deservedness. Um, yeah. Why do I deserve it? What have I done to deserve this? It's, I think that's really strikes the, the heart of a lot of these conversations around basic income. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think there are so many people who it's it, it also sits on a bit of a pride thing. I think also it kind of is this hangover, you know, possibly from 
you know, the way that we used to view working and how work has changed our view of it now. And there are so many people who will say, but I haven't worked for it or they or they haven't worked for it. That's probably the more you know, kind of pointing at other people and saying they haven't worked for it. And as you said, yeah, I hadn't, hadn't quite thought about when you said, oh, it's universal. I was thinking in my head like, oh, yeah, all the, you know, even like the queen, you know, or like, you, you know, like, you know, all these like billionaires also will get that. Is that something that we that we want? Is that something that we that we don't want? If we see universal, then we have to. Right. That's the kind of the, the proponent of it. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting one in terms of the shifting norms and I'd love to see how campaigners and activists really tap into those people who have those views to to, to kind of try and shift them and how that how that would work yeah I, I think um, I think just on that is like the the, the the thing about why should I get it I think it's because so often we've we've taught ourselves in, in, in society that our value comes from our work and when I say work you are our pay our paid labor um, yeah. And we, we define so much of people's success around their success in, in a workplace uh, and their status in their career. And I think that that leads to people, yeah, feeling that actually, I think the shift, I suppose, what I'm saying is with basic income is that you get this because you exist, you're a human, you're part of our society. And yes, that means rich people get it as well because they are also part of our society. I think people see basic income slightly differently to benefits because everybody gets it. It's not, it, there's no stigma attached to it. Exactly. You're, you're no, no better than anybody else. And you're certainly no worse than anybody else. We, we all get this because we all contribute to society in different ways. And we all deserve something back purely because we exist in society. And I think that's can help us reimagine the kind of social contract between citizen and state and vice versa. And I think, in fact, it's been really interesting to see in, in Finland, some, one of the results of the pilot was that levels of trust between uh, of government and uh, actually went up and, wow. and, and, and mm. something we desperately need I think well the government certainly yes. wants, wants that right now uh, and but uh, but yeah I think it plays into I think this this idea of how, how we see ourselves in relation to each other and to and to institutions um, so and so I think the and just to, for listeners you know for rich people the very very richest would in effect yes they would get basic income but they would in effect pay it back and more through through more taxation because yeah. one of the ways in which you pay for it is it is a changes to taxation system to make it more progressive that doesn't necessarily have to mean income tax necessarily it could be uh, other ideas around taxing things like our data or our natural resources or um or land um there are other progressive ways of just um, thinking about that or even just corporation tax. I was yeah. I was watching a seminar the other day and they were saying that there's like 35 billion of corporation tax just either waiting or could be, you know, claimed in the UK. So it's not, as you said, it's not kind of a magic money tree to, to pay for these things. Um, I also just wanted to, to come back and talk about, you know, who should be in the room when these decisions are being made. We've already talked about, you know, um, to bring it back to sort of the gender angle, you know, I mean, all the way through this pandemic, I've just been completely banging my head against a wall at seeing rooms full of men making decisions, you know, about these things. How do you think that we could effectively ensure that women and, and other minorities as well, you know, those from, from um, you know, lower classes or um, from other minority groups could be more represented in these discussions and could have a bigger voice? Oh, it's vital. And, and I, I, I think the... I'm not going to pretend that the basic income movement has has got this right. We we have problems uh, around how how diverse it is, particularly around gender. Actually, 
Uh, but there's some brilliant organizations. Uh, I'd encourage people to check out UBI Lab Women um, who are starting to change that. But um, yeah, it's really important that, that, that women's organizations um, are represented in, and working through those, those, those technical questions about the, the, the delivery of the policy. So as I said earlier, we don't have unintended consequences. Definitely need to be in the room. I'll give one example about other other groups as well. I think there's um, a question. So when I say everyone, when we say universal, you also do need to draw the line somewhere. And there's there is a question of, um, you know, is it every resident? Is it every citizen? And then you start to get into questions of no recourse to public funds and some of the people who are like in in that gap. And, and Brexit is going to complicate that even further. I think both both of our partners are from. Yes. From EU countries, and we're going through that at the moment. So, so, so that, for example, those groups that or organisations and people that represent those issues need to be in the room to 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 work through how that would Im- impact people. And you don't want to create like, you know, a second class uh, group of people who, yes. who have who, some who have basic income, some who don't have it. And I think that's that would be really really important. I point to Germany, uh, who are having some really interesting conversations about. Uh, about basic income and how and, and uh, for for refugees and, and uh, asylum seekers. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's groups like that that need to to be in the room, and also just generally us as a movement. I think this is why we partly why why we exist as as the basic income conversation is to to start having those conversations with with different groups of society to explore how how would basic income impact your your life? How would it intersect with your your issues that you're passionate about and um and not enough work's been done on that yet and that, but but thankfully there's some great organizations yeah. who are doing that now yeah that definitely sounds great and i think it's again going back to this universal thing you know you we think the nhs in the uk is universal but you've got lots of mm. migrants or those who have you know no recurse to, to public funds who are not able to access that and are falling through that gaps and they are the ones who need it the most right yeah i should say and that, um, another group that's really important is um in this is is uh, people with disability and I think yes so many of the um people who have issues with the current benefit system for, for, are, are from a disabled background and, and partly one of my um motivations around basic income is the experience of my mum she has uh, bipolar mm-hmm. and um is entitled to more benefits than she currently gets and the reason she doesn't is because of the the, the horrible means tested system and the amount of forms it makes you sign hoops it makes you jump through uh, and the mm-hmm. stigma that that has means that she doesn't want to do that and, and is ashamed to, to apply and, and that's means that she doesn't get as much money as she should she should and it's therefore really important that that um you know we, we don't replicate that and make sure disabled people are in, in the room um when, when we because and i think this is a real hot debate about the level that you set it at because if it is a, a level set relatively no, low and that's quite or modest um then then you are going to have to have additional support on top of that for, for people with additional needs exactly. like if you have housing benefit carers allowance or disability allowance um and we we don't want to just leave the system as it is it's not like we're going to create a basic income and then just leave the current mess that that it is for disabled people applying so that has to sit alongside reforms and there's some great work being done by Centre for Welfare Reform about UBI Plus, about how you can combine those two uh, issues. So, yeah, I, I, and that, that's another example of why that's really important. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I just want to wrap up on the final question, which is 
kind of about how as an individual what would you say to someone <laughs> if they haven't been convinced I, I would be very shocked after this discussion but you know as an individual what can someone do tomorrow to they think UPI is something that we desperately need what what would you kind of recommend that they do so I'm I'm from an organization called the basic income conversation and what we exist to do is to support people to have conversations about basic income, about what it would mean for their lives, what it means for their friends' lives, how it intersects with, with uh, issues that they care about. Because I think, it, I said right at the top, it's a simple idea, but it has big implications. And I think people naturally have questions. And we think the best way to do that is through conversation. So we've created a toolkit for people to be able to, to do that um, you can download it from our website and um, we'll, we'll make sure we get a link uh, to the listeners to be able to do that and I challenge anyone to be able to get a room of five to ten people it probably at the moment it would need to be online but um, yeah. f- five five to ten members of your friends and family and have a conversation about basic income uh, uh, maybe it can be um, yeah just I don't know when this maybe. it's a great Christmas Christmas dinner yeah I was about to say I don't know when this is going out but it can be a great Christmas dinner rather than and you can yeah rather than arguing about something with your family yeah you can argue about basic income no but, election discussion yeah <laughs> but um yeah I, I think that that's that's what we we'd encourage people to do and it's a really easy thing for people to do there's other things too if you're really passionate about this you know and you're in a local area there's there's some brilliant groups we'll make sure we get the links to you um, there's some groups yeah, in your local area and if there's not one there's um, the UBI lab network can help you create one uh, and there's various uh, kind of more collectivist type things where you can write to your MP or uh, sign, sign petitions and things like that but that, um, so we'll make sure we get the link to you there but uh, I'd encourage as well as doing a bit of clicking I'd say a bit of com- conversing and, um, and discussion that'd be the next step I'd encourage people to do. That sounds great and, some, and a very easy you know um, first step to take you know that's what people often struggle with right is is the first step to take have a conversation with someone who's maybe never heard about UBI and talk to them about you know what they think about it and how it could impact their their lives yeah and I think for, for what that does is I mean it's, it spreads the word it, it gathers uh, spreads understanding about the concept it's a chance to be develop new leaders um take leadership uh, you know hosting a room of I say it's easy hosting a group of five to ten people you know it's, it's a good next step um, and it helps us most importantly share stories. It's, it's the stories that I think are really going to, because I think when I said earlier, it's, it's those questions about deservedness, uh, the, the attitudes to work. I think though, I, there's no amount of like data that I can put in front of you that's going to shift people's minds. Ultimately, it's going to be about stories and people's experiences exactly. and, and saying, well, if I hear a rumor of saying, oh, I'm not going to ch- quit my job and be lazy and you're not going to quit the job and be lazy. Well, why do I think anyone else is going to do that? Um, and it's, it's those stories that are, that are going to help us shift this ultimately. Great. Well, thank you so much, Mike. That was such an interesting conversation. And I'm really, um, we'll make sure that we kind of get all those resources and have an, a link to the toolkit so people can access that um, really quickly. I just want to say thank you to everyone for listening. Um, this is um, this is the first podcast I've recorded. So this is actually really exciting. I'm not, I'm not afraid to say that as, a, as I sit around my pillowed pillowed room. Um, so thanks, Mike, for, for being one of my first guests. Um, and if anyone um, wants to email me and say they loved it or wants to challenge, I'm always open to those conversations. So the uh, email for the podcast is feministfutures um, podcast at gmail.com. But yeah, it's great. And we will um, catch you up next week with our next guest. Thanks so much. Oh, 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 oh,
Thank you.